the opportunities for leadership are everywhere. For the first time, this was, I think, a point we, we made in abundance, but I think it's still true. For the first time in history, individuals and small teams can start going at problems like energy scarcity, water scarcity, or housing, right? Like we're talking about 3D printing houses for the poor. This is one guy, Brett Hagler, went to Haiti and went, wow, earthquake was a bunch of years ago. People should not be still living in tent cities three years after a major earthquake. That's wrong. Let's fix this. He founded a nonprofit himself, knew nothing about 3D printing, just thought the technology might work for this, right? That's a a level of leadership. You go back 20 years ago, the only people who could make those kinds of changes were large corporations, big governments. Now it's individuals. Now individuals can make huge differences. And that's what accelerated technology and emerging technology enables. The opportunity to lead is much more, it's being democratized in a way that we haven't seen before. Hi, this is Joshua Spodek, and this is Leadership in the Environment. You're not the only one who cares about your impact enough to act. You're part of a global community undeterred by people saying, if others don't change first, then what I do doesn't matter, and other excuses. We've read the science. We can do this. This show is about personal responsibility, acting, and improving your life by your values. As guest after guest says, the challenge was hard, but thank you for getting me to do it. I wish I'd done it earlier. Listen on for leaders to inspire you, hear their struggles, and then act. Go to joshuaspodick.com slash podcast to commit to a public personal challenge of your own. You're not alone, and you don't have to wait for others. One of my goals of this podcast is to bring people with alternative views, and this is mainly selfish on my part because I want to learn and grow from their alternative viewpoints. I grew up viewing technology and efficiency as better ways for humans to live in order to decrease our impact and damage to nature. This is part of why I helped build a satellite. Now I've changed. As my podcast episodes, other ones distinguish raising efficiency from decreasing total waste to working on value. So listen to other episodes for that. Now I read Stephen Kotler and Peter Diamandis' upcoming book, The Future is Faster Than You Think. It's part of their experiential technology series, which include the other two books, Abundance, The Future is Better Than You Think, and bold, how to go big, create wealth, and impact the world. I read them as pro-technology, or I read them as pro-technology. I'm glad to have spoken with Stephen. Before we started recording, he told me some of his past interest in the environment, and understanding those views changed how I understood the book. So he repeated it in the conversation you're about to hear. This book is subtitled, How Converging Technologies Are Transforming Business, Industries, and Our Lives, and it compiles all the big transformations that technology is about to create or is creating. If you've read about quantum computing, artificial intelligence, networks, sensors, robotics, 3D printing, virtual reality, augmented reality, blockchain, nanotech, and so on, but you haven't researched or reflected enough to digest and see how they'll affect you and us, read the book because Stephen and Peter researched, reflected, and wrote about all of those, and they projected how they will affect us. More than that, They talked to the people at the forefront and at the root of these technologies, running the businesses, making the inventions, and the institutions behind and around them. The book covers far more than a short conversation does, but this conversation covers what the book doesn't, where Stephen is coming from regarding the environment. So that's going to be something special that you get in this conversation. These technologies exist and are happening. And he points out, we have not put many technology genies back in the bottle. This threw me for a loop because I'm critical of a lot of these technologies, But what technologies have we brought into the world and then put back in the bottle, as he puts it? So if you want to know what's coming and what it means, listen and read their book. Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spodak. I'm here with Stephen Kotler. Stephen, how are you? I'm good, Joshua. How are you? I'm very good. My mind is is a whir with having read your book. And uh, also, we were just talking a bit on where you came from to... Not, not only this book, but your work, your work with Peter. And I wonder if the best place to start, I'm sure you've answered this a lot, I apologize, but could you share a little bit about what you're just saying about what, what brought you to what you're doing? Yeah, it's a, so I came in directly through environmental issues. So years ago, 2000, let's say 11, I might get the date wrong. I published a book called A Small Furry Prayer mm-hmm. about the relationships between humans and animals and um, really about animal rights, a, a really hardcore animal rights book, which has always been a very big passion of mine. 
And uh, they sent me, my publisher sent me on this giant book tour. It was one of the last kind of people don't do book tours anymore because the internet, everything else, but it was one of, it was still early enough that it was one of these giant 50, 60 cities and the readings were very well attended, but I started realizing that like I wrote this book so I could start like caring environmental messages towards the rest of the world. Right. And I realized everybody was showing up at my readings were already animal geeks. They were, they already knew everything about the environment. Like I was preaching to the choir and the book was wildly successful, but it didn't do what I, what really I wanted to do, which was how do you get, bring these ideas more into the mainstream mm-hmm. um, and really go up against big environmental challenges. The one that I was really thinking a lot about was the sixth grade extinction, the biodiversity crisis, the climate change, obviously, and et cetera, et cetera. And I started this is complicated environmental stuff. So if you know anything uh, about the biodiversity crisis, is one of the reasons it's happening is because we no longer have large stretches of contiguous wildlands. Animals, plants, ecosystems, lots of room to roam. So we've known since the 60s through the work of a guy named Michael Soule and a field called Island Biogeography that you know, the best way to kind of preserve plants, animals, and ecosystems were migration corridors that linked our national parks together, were huge kind of mega linkages. They, they talked about contiguous wildlands. This idea got very popular when E.O. Wilson wrote Half Earth, mm-hmm. right? When he said, hey, we have to, we're going to do this. We have to set aside half the planet. And whatever the number, it's a huge amount of land. We need to repurpose a huge amount of land for animals if we're going to stave off the sixth grade extinction. And I started looking at can we use technology to solve any of these problems. I've been studying science and technology for a very long time as a journalist. It was one of my big beats. And this was right when Dixon Despalmier was doing his initial thinking around vertical farming. And it was I had been tracking a little bit uh, the growth of cultured beef growing steak from stem cells. Mm-hmm. And the reason these two technologies are so important is if you look at land use, 30% of our land yeah. goes towards cattle, right? A massive other chunk, 70% total for agriculture. And first of all, it's a waste because most people are moving to the city, right? So our food stuff travels 1,500 to 2,500 miles to get to our plates. So vertical farming, which moves the farm from the you know country where it is now into skyscrapers in the city where people are, there's enormous environmental benefits, food miles go down, nutrition goes up, a lot of stuff like that. Um, plus it frees up all this land. In vitro meat, cultured beef is the same thing, right? This thing, probably the single best thing we could do for the planet is to stop eating beef. And there's millions of reasons why. And so I started to realize that our technology was starting to catch these problems at scale. And the bigger issue was getting people to understand how to link these things together, right? It's really neat that we have vertical farms all over the place right now, but nobody's taking the agricultural land that's being liberated by vertical farms and repurposing it for wildlands, right? Nobody's thinking about this at kind of an ecosystem scale. So those were all the problems I was looking at and thinking about and trying to solve and really trying to just kind of alert people to the fact that technology had caught our problems but that we still had to, we still like to solve these problems. We still required the largest cooperative effort in history. And this is still about less than 10 years ago. This was starting when I wrote Abundance with Peter Diamandis. You know, it's continued. The technology has gotten better and better and better. In fact, in the future is faster than you think. Uh, one of the things that we write about is a company called Biocarbon Engineering. They manufacture drones for tree reforestation, right? And as oh, you know, yeah. pardon me, right? And we lose... 7 billion trees. I think it's seven and a half billion trees a year. One of the reasons that we're in the middle of a giant, you know, biodiversity crisis is, is this loss of this land. Trees are big carbon sinks, so important global warming. Biocarbon engineering, tree planting drones. Uh, a single pilot can fly about six drones at once. And those six drones can replant a hundred thousand trees a day. This Technology is already, it's real. It's in the real world. It's being used in Miramar to replant the Irrawaddy River Delta, which was completely denuded. And it's, it's very effective and it's very early stage. The same technology, I was just talking to Lauren Fletcher, the, the original founder, he's no longer with biochemical engineering, but I was saying what they do is they fire seed pod missiles into the ground, right? Mm-hmm. And the, the seed pods are wrapped in like this gelatinous growth medium, acts as a cushion, mm-hmm. right? Um, and it speeds the growth of the plant. And they're getting... 
better than average, better than hand-planted returns, right? More mm-hmm. seedlings are surviving. It's AI maps, so they, the plants get planted exactly what they kind of maximize growth and sunlight and don't outcompete with their neighbors and things like that. It's not monocropping. You can mix up what you're planning. Mm-hmm. But I, I was talking to Lauren Fletcher, the, the guy who created this, and I said, wait a minute, soil depletion is a huge problem, as I'm sure you're aware of, and soil restoration is very hard uh, if for no other reason than soil's not sexy and it's a sort of a tragedy of the commons, right? Who owns the soil? Whose job is it to kind of fix the soil? These are these are difficult, complicated issues. Trees are a little sexier. They're easier to sell. So my question was, could you use the same technology to both plant trees and to uh, work with the soil? And he's working on that exact thing right now and it's becoming more and more possible. So these things are starting to come to scale. We start starting to have tools to meet some of the crises that that, that were, are in front of us. And they've been developing over the past 10 years. Um, now, I think they're starting to get really exciting and really interesting. Okay. So there's so many questions that come up. I'm going to give you two broad directions that we could go into. One is I'm hearing a passion in what you're talking about. You're not just a reporter covering a beat in what you're talking about here. Something is coming that's deeper inside. And I'm really curious about that. The other is about the book. And you're about to say something? No, I was, I was waiting to hear you. He said, well, there are themes of, of exponential growth and convergence of technology and the ripples throughout that, which I hope I didn't just give away. I mean, that's what the book is. If I'm No, the book is about what's going to happen over the next 10 years, right? It's, we have massively accelerating technology and it's starting to individual lines. So robotics, exponential line of technology is now converging with AI, right? These were both powerful individual technologies, but when they start coming together, technological employment for tens of millions of people starts to become a really serious issue. So the scale of disruption and the scale of opportunity goes up. And we, as we, the case we make in the book is pretty much every major industry on earth is going to be completely reinvented over the next decade. And by the way, did you, you quoted Jeffrey West a couple times in the book and you live not far from him, I take it. I well, used from- to. Yeah. When I was, it was I, and I was lucky enough to meet him a handful of times the Santa Fe Institute does a uh, yearly high-performance conference. And so the other half of my work, part of my work is disruptive technology, and the other half of my work is with the Flow Research Collective on studying uh, peak performance and the neurobiology of peak performance. So I've been at that conference a bunch, and Jeffrey West has been there. And his book, uh, Scale, is just yeah. a phenomenal book on these same topics, right? Exactly, yeah. And I had him on three times, and it was one of, I mean, my background in physics, his background in physics, probably not my most listened to episode, which is- it, That's a shame. I love, I love him. I didn't even know you did that. I will go back and I will listen to all three because he's great. Yeah. And he's, I mean, he talks about it from a theoretical perspective, like the exponent, growing, 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 but you're talking about on the ground and all the names behind it. And I felt like as I'm reading it, now I'm caught up. I see, like, I've known about blockchain. I've known about AI. I've known about all these things. And now I see them all put together, but I also feel like, and this might be the last chance someone could really catch up. And in a second, like there's going to be so much happening and so much happening and so much happening that it'll be very difficult. Although we're also living and it's, we're going to be living, experiencing all the time. So I will tell you, before I write The Future is Faster Than You Think, I wrote a science fiction book called Last Hang on Cyberspace. And one of the reasons, and we were already working on Future is Faster Than You Think when I wrote this science fiction book, but I literally... All the technologies were coming together so quickly mm-hmm. that I couldn't do exactly what you're just talking about. I couldn't hold it in my head. I was like, okay, I see, okay, this is blockchain, an individual line of technology, and this is robotics, and this is nanotechnology. So I had to literally create a world in a book and put all these technologies together and live in that world for the period of time it took me to write that novel before I could go back to the future as fast than you think and go, okay, now I can take it apart again and, and, and do it that way. But I really literally had to write a book so I could hold it in my head and see what it was going to look like when we put it all together. And this is just, you know, and the funny thing I do want to say is that book is set 2025, 2026. And most people, when they read it, the number one comment is there's no possible way this is going to happen by 2030, 2040. And I'm like, no, no, that's just 2025. We're not even we're not even at the end of the decade yet. So there's a, there's a huge optimism in in your guys' perspective. If I'm not misreading, so there is enormous optimism. But it, let's let me take one step back and separate it from this. Is not we, we are not techno utopianists 
at all. We do not believe, both Peter and myself do not believe that technology alone will solve our problems. What we do believe is that for the first time in history, our technology is powerful enough and user-friendly enough, right? All the, the cool thing is not just that these lines of technology are accelerating and converging, it's that they have user-friendly interfaces, which means they're de-experted, right? And the, the greatest example of this is we talk about quantum computing in the book, which, as you know, go back 15 years, and that was a total sci-fi fantasy. And yet, you know, this week, I think Google announced that they had quantum supremacy, which is a quantum computer that is now capable of more powerful calculations than the classical computer. But you can go to Rigetti.com, which is a quantum computing technology, and download Forest. It is their user-friendly interface to the quantum world. Anybody can run programs on their 32-quibit quantum computer. And the proof is 120 million programs have been run on their computer by people like you and me. You downloading is a user-friendly interface and tapping into what was a sci-fi technology 10 years ago. Yeah, that was something that I didn't see in the book as much of, of like, I guess I was just reading a story about a Japanese robot that was picking someone up and carrying them over to, you know, geriatric care. And while I was reading, I was thinking, this is all very techy, but there's also a human side of things that is that what you just talked about now. That well, it is- gets really interesting, right? One of the things we cover in the book is sort of the rise of affective computing. Yeah. Affect is the study of emotions, right? So emotional computing. And I first looked at this uh, closely, God, seven, eight years ago, I wrote about it in, in Stealing Fire. The Department of Defense built an AI psychologist named Ellie, built at USC, to diagnose uh, signs of PTSD and depression in soldiers, early diagnosis. And the problem they were facing is soldier suicide was rising, depression in soldiers returning from combat was rising, huge mental health crisis. And the best way to prevent soldier suicide is early warning detection of depression, right, and PTSD. And the best way to do that is interview people with a human psychologist. But there aren't that many. We couldn't scale it, right? Mm-hmm. The needs were too big. So they contracted with a bunch of folks at USC, both psychologists and technologists and coders and whatnot, and they built an AI that can track at the time I had a session with Ellie, the AI shrink, uh, she was tracking, I think, 60 different data points a second, eye tone, vocal tone, eye gaze, blah, blah, blah. Micro. Yeah, micro expressions, Paul Ekman's micro expressions, and so forth and so forth. But now, here's the crazy part. That same software is being built into the LiDAR sensors that are on top autonomous cars that are going to be rolling out on our streets. Why? Because if you're an autonomous car, the last thing you want to do is run over a pedestrian. So you have to be able to read emotions at a distance on a person's face to know, are they angry? Might they run into traffic? Or are they calm and like paying attention to traffic? So affective computing has gone from the Department of Defense building a, a specific platform for soldier suicide to something that's now being programmed into the autonomous cars that are going to be rolling out on our streets next year. Now I have to ask about your passion. And I have to there's a couple of times when I've chuckled in, when you're talking about stuff that wasn't funny, but it was like the, in my head, the science fictioniness of it combined with the nowness of it, it's like discombobulating my, <laughs> yeah. it's, I, it's totally disc. I mean, it's also, that's also why we opened the book with the story of uh, flying cars, right? Cause flying cars are this ultimate sci-fi technology that have been, you know, people have been talking it's about always them. 20 years away. Yeah. It's always 20 years away. They've been trying to make them forever. And you know, we opened the book at Uber Elevate, which is the ride-sharing giant's second annual flying car conference. And it's the second annual because the cars are already here. Right? There are 25 different car companies that are making flying cars. They're, mm-hmm. they're here. They're done. The question they were trying to solve is how do you bring this to scale? And the reason is they're going to start rolling out test programs for aerial ride-sharing in LA, in Dallas, in major metropolises in 2023. And they want the service up and running by 2025. And by 2030, if their numbers are anywhere close to correct, they think that aerial ride-sharing is going to be cheaper than individual car ownership. Individual car ownership comes out to something like 58 cents a mile or something. Um, this isn't the cost of buying the car. It's insurance, having a garage, parking, all the, all the stuff that goes into it. They're aiming for 44 cents a mile, which is incredible. 
but you can kind of look at their numbers and their stats and their research and, and you can see how it can go in this direction. Are there, is there a timetable exactly right? Who knows? But what it means is flying cars by the end of the, uh, end of the century. And that's a huge transportation revolution. One of these cars goes 150 miles an hour. It can fly you from San Francisco to San Diego in a single trip. What happens to the size of the local school district, the size of the local dating pool? These are like basic cultural things, right, that are built around our transportation system that is being completely reinvented. If you look at the 20th century, there was literally one major transportation revolution. And, you know, over, we're going to see like three or four or five by the end of the decade, which is pretty incredible. And I have to say that I started reading that and it's like, yeah, 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 of course. That's what they said 20 years ago. And I'm reading, I'm like, one by one, I don't know all the details, but it, I was like, yeah, but when individuals driving, they crash into each other. And I'm like, no, because the individuals aren't driving them. And for the listener, this is one story that you started with. There's tons of them in the book and they're all mind-blowing. Not all, some are mind-blowing. And the one that got me was the uh, the robots that in in a couple of years went from clumsy, foolish into like ninjas. And also that phrase after getting whacked with a hockey stick, it was still going. I think it was that part. That part to me was that transition was so fast. And it was, you have to really, so this was Fukushima was the disaster in Japan, right? The meltdown of the reactor was too hot to send in humans. So they tried to send in robots, right? This is 2000 and I want to say 11 or 2013. And it's a disaster, right? And so DARPA creates the robotic grand challenge to make robots for disaster mitigation. 2015 is the first year and you can literally get online and watch the competition and like robots fall down. They can't Mm -hmm. climb stairs. They can't do anything. I mean, like literally they, they look more like drunken toys. And they're doing it slowly. Yeah. The next year, Boston Dynamics releases a video of Atlas running through a snowy tree line forest. The year after that, it's Atlas doing parkour, backflips off boxes and things like that. And it's that dexterous. And, you know, now we have disaster-ready mitigation bots. And as you pointed out, they're moving into elder care. They're moving into surgical care, operating rooms and so forth. You know, robots are sort of everywhere. In fact, at this point, you can literally buy a robot vacuum cleaner for less money than a good vacuum cleaner. So there's, there's many, many things in the, in the book and you kind of hear about them, but you've really compiled them. And yeah, I think the point is, is the intersection, right? We've seen these exponential technologies, right? Moore's law is the classic example of an exponential technology. It's a technology that doubles on a regular basis, right? Moore's law has been around since the sixties. So we've seen this with these individual lines of exponential technology. We've been watching AI develop for a really long time now, but what we're not ready for is what happens when these things start converging. And, and the difference is when you get individual lines of exponentials, they're disruptive technologies, which is Clayton Christian's classic word for a technology that disrupts an existing product or service, right? So silicon chips replace vacuum tubes. But what you see when you get exponential lines of technology converging is the scale of disruption. The speed goes up and the scale goes up. So what used to be products and services becomes whole markets and institutions. And that's a level of disruption that we haven't seen before. And it's 10 or 12 different exponential technologies all crashing into each other right here, right now. And all this is going to unfold over the next decade. Were you surprised to come in this direction from if it, if it was starting from the environmental side? It's not the natural, it's not what I would expect it. I'm not saying it's not natural. You have to understand that since probably the early 90s, 94, 95, I have been uh, covering for dozens of different magazines uh, and in my own work as, as a researcher, kind of working with firsthand. Uh, but it, as, a, as a journalist, my beat was the transformation of science fiction to science fact. So I had a list of 38 different sci-fi technologies I was tracking. And every time one of them started to become sci- go from science fiction to science fact, I was writing about it. I was, I was putting myself into the middle of it. So I've been watching it for all this stuff for, you know, 30 years at this point and, you know, through six different books on technology. So it's on a certain level, it wasn't surprising, but I will say, even when I was writing the future, especially by the time I got to chapter four, I was talking to Peter and I was like, man, like, I know all this stuff. I've been covering this stuff for 30 years, but when you put it together in one book, it's still shocking. It's still hard to believe. And I'm the guy writing the book. Yeah, tell me more about this passion because it's, and what's it like when 
I am just, I am fascinated by puzzle solving in general, right? Technology, technology is a, is, is a form of really interesting puzzle solving. I also believe that we don't, we don't have a way to go backwards. Uh, We don't, we never have seen, you know, with the, with the possible exception of the fact that we haven't really blown ourselves up with nuclear war or bioweapons yet, we haven't really managed to put a technology back in the box. And there's different thinkings on why this is the case. Kevin Kelly wrote a, a wonderful book where he argued that technology functions as another form of life. I'm interested in the psychology of this and all this stuff. So I've been fascinated on all sides by technology as a puzzle solver and the psychology of why, like why we're so addicted to it. And, you know, why does it keep marching endlessly on? But I also think it does keep marching. Like it's not going to go away. So I, rather than pretend it doesn't exist, I want to, you know, I want to know how we can use it in phenomenal ways to help our planet. How about unintended side effects? I was I was hoping that there'd be more about that. We did a whole chapter on it, which I will say uh, is more than we wrote in either bold or abundance. So there's an, there's an entire chapter on these issues, and to me, it's not all technologies produce unintentional. Every innovation yeah. has unintentional side effects. Um, that that's what goes along with it, and. They're getting bigger, right? Because that's the, one of the things that uh, tech, this technology does. If it has user-friendly interfaces, right? It means anybody can use these technologies. So they are, uh, some of them are very, very dangerous, but so are our ways to protect against them. And it's an interesting arms race is, is what I think at this point. And I don't, I don't really know who wins, but, and I talk to people on both sides, right? I've got uh, you know, friends who are on the cybercrime side, and I have friends who are, uh, you know, on the on the white hacker side, and I watch them go back and forth, and I don't know where I come down. Sometimes I come down, oh my god, this is really scary, and sometimes I'm like, oh well, that's a great solution. Okay, I'm less I'm less nervous, and it, it goes back and forth for me. I think. Yeah, it's kind of funny. I try to think. I like to think I'm working on solving big problems, but every problem I can think of was the solution to some problem before. And that means that whatever solutions I come up with someday in the future, even if I solve some huge problem someday in the future, someone's going to be like, yes, Bodek had this great idea. It looked great at the time. And now look what's happened. I don't know any way to get around that. I don't think there is a way to get around with it. I think that's, I just think that that's sort of how uh, innovation works and how creativity works. And you just, you have to work with it, right? Like we're not going to turn our technology off even in places where it might be a really great idea. We just seem unable to do that um, as a species. And there's, there, um, there are good or at least sound neurobiological reasons for that. Um, there's reasons just built into our hard wiring that make it hard for Pandora back in the box. So I'm much more interested in how we can work with it more than anything else. That to me is, you know, get proactive, get out in front of it um, as much as possible. Here's a discrepancy I found that maybe you can help me resolve or understand. There is almost back to back. There's a part where you wrote about um, a lot of people think when new technologies come in and display that displace jobs and that's a problem, but generally these technologies create more jobs than they displace. And there are lots of examples of that. And I completely agree with that. I mean, some people talk about the shift. It's like the jobs are created in one area and they're lost in another area. So there might be a problem there. I think that's a, what I would call a level two problem, but with environmental issues, a lot of people predict that technology will produce less, making it more efficient will produce less waste, but might that also produce more waste in the long run in the way that something that takes away jobs in one place may create more jobs in others? Did that make sense? What I said? You're asking unintended consequences questions around. And so waste, I know what you're saying. I think waste is probably the wrong example because the, what gives us at least in terms of what we looked at in the book, right? Uh, we looked at two things. One, we looked at uh, 3D printing. Additive manufacturing is an entirely waste-free technology, right? And because you are building things up one layer at a time, you complexity comes for free, right? Normally, we start with a big block of materials and we chip away to get something smaller and smaller and smaller. Now we're starting with microbe exteriors and building out. So there is no waste. And the second thing that is happening, and this is to me much more interesting, I'm sure to you much more interesting, we're seeing closed loop economies, right? 
we're seeing, you know, we biomimicry at the level of products and services, right? And when you go to the level of kind of markets and institutions, we call them closed loop economies or circular economies. And more and more of this is, is happening and more and more of it is making good business sense, right? In nature, nothing is ever wasted. One species detritus becomes the foundation of another species survival. And we're learning to mimic those kinds of processes. So waste is literally being engineered out. What's interesting, and we know how to do this at scale, and we know it's good for business also. Like there's a sound, amazing business case to be made for doing this kind of stuff. GM, for example, has made uh, 154 of their American plants waste-free, and they save over a billion dollars a year as a result. So this is good for business, which is an awesome driver of this stuff. But I do get your point. I think your point is right. I think waste was maybe the one example where it might not be right, but I do get your point. Uh, and I don't, you know, I, the, the thing that I, the, the great example right now for me on that one is the lithium ion battery, where mining lithium is an absolute disaster, but we absolutely have to mine lithium because we need these batteries, because we need solar, because it's the only way we know how to fight climate change at scale, or one of the only ways, right? So, that's a great example of unintended consequences. And, you know, the, the solution there seems to be that, you know, material science is another kind of technology that's moving exponentially. And there are new materials that are coming in that are opening up new kinds of battery technologies that will hopefully, you know, replace extractive industries like mining um, in the future going forward. Yeah. It seems like efficiency, something that I look at a lot is that, um, my model, and I'm not sure how applicable it is, and, and you can help me refine it, is that when Watt made the first steam engine, or sorry, not his steam engine, not the first one, everyone thought we're going to use less coal because it's more efficient. And each use was more efficient, but then people used it for more and more things, and the total coal use went up. And there's Japanese paradoxes and rebound effects, and but it's bigger than that. It seems like you think efficiency is going to, in terms of jobs, it's going to, some people might naively think it's going to make jobs go away, but no, actually they pop up more elsewhere. And I wonder if the, oh, efficiency will make the pollution go down. Oh, but it might pop up more elsewhere. I think that's probably true. But I, you know, your point on jobs is, is interesting, right? Because this was, I've, you know, I've said for a while that every time a technology becomes exponential, we find an internet-sized opportunity inside. And you can't see them in advance, right? Who knew the internet was going to show up five years before the internet showed up? And as you pointed out, the internet did take millions of jobs, but it, it created 2.6 jobs for every one job it replaced, right? So the, it, was, it was net positive in the end. And I think we're going to see that kind of with, with most of these, these technologies. But will there be unintended consequences? There always are, right? And hopefully we can get out in front of them rather than they get out in front of us, right? I mean, climate change is the ultimate unintended consequence of the Industrial Revolution, right? Yeah. It's exactly what that is. Feeling inspired? Do you like hearing others acting that you're not alone? Go to joshuaspodick.com slash podcast to hear other interviews, but even more valuable, join the growing community of people who care enough to act, not just talk. Read the list of people who have taken on personal challenges and then commit to one yourself. Don't be surprised if you end up loving it, changing more, and finding people following you without you even trying. That's what happens when you improve your life by living by your values. Now, changing topics. There's a lot of individuals that we read about in the paper, and it seems like you've been in touch. I mean, there's how many people do you actually directly work with, even if just any, like there's Bezos and there's Musk and there's everybody in the book. I think there, I mean, there were a handful of quotes in the book that were not done from direct interviews, but pretty much they were direct interviews either conducted by Peter or myself. And Peter does, uh, you know, between the two of us and the work I do with Flo, and you know, Peter's got 22 companies at this point, and we have Singularity University. So yeah, there is a lot of direct contact, you know, between us. This is we're, we're reporting on stuff that, you know, we're using in our own businesses, we're dealing with in our own lives, uh, and you know, we've spent decades studying. And now I remember that was the first footnote in the book was that all these quotes are from what you just said. I don't want to ask what everyone asks, but I can't help. How is it? That must be great. What's it like working with them and and being part of all these things that most people just look at from the outside. Um, I don't know. Uh, I don't know if I can answer that question. And what I mean is, I, you know, I've been a journalist back, way back in the early 1990s. I had a, a great editor, a guy named Rob Hill, 
And he used to say, the thing about being a journalist is you get to walk through the kingdom. And what, you know, what he meant is, I mean, you know, by the time I was 30, I had had breakfast with kings and queens and presidents and CEOs and everybody you could put, you know what I mean? So like, that's just, it, it's, I've been doing this for too long to have that, but you're asking a question about like, what's it like to, you know, to me, it's just normal. This is, you know, the work I do. And I also, I'm not on the front lines with those guys. I'm not working with Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk. You know what I mean? Peter's worked with some of these guys for a lot longer. But Jeff Bezos and Peter go back to college because Bezos, I believe, Peter started an organization called Students for the Exploration of Space. Mm-hmm. And uh, when he was at, I want to say at Harvard, and Bezos was at Princeton and was the Princeton chapter chairman of Peter's organization that he started in college. So some he's got relationships that, that some of these places that go back a while. And there's also a lot of not the the there are a whole bunch of places where I was reading something in the book and I go in and look at online. Like I'm like I'm really curious. What is this building? You were talking about buildings in Haiti. You were talking about Apollo shirts. Brett Hagler's project. Well, I was he was inspired in Haiti, right? Mm-hmm. Brett Hagler is a guy who runs a company, a nonprofit called New Story that Bill uses 3D printing to print communities. In three months, they will print 100 single-family homes that retail for like four and $10,000, depending on where they build it. Um, it's a solar-powered 3D printer designed to work in the worst environments in Vanderbilt. And he just started, they just started printing their very first community. It's 100 single-family homes for the poor uh, outside in Mexico. Have you seen the pictures of it? Uh, I I saw... A cl- I was just in Brazil giving a speech and I actually saw video footage mm-hmm. of it up at the, and there, um, and I've seen one of the homes. Yeah. I, I've seen pictures of now communities and, and they're like really quaint little buildings. And they're the most amazing thing to me is, so when we wrote abundance, it's 2012, I want to say the cutting edge of this was a guy named Baruch Kashnevis who was at USC and he had developed what was then unheard of which was a concrete 3D printer that was big enough to print at scale, right? And this was, this was huge news, right? Huge news. And it, all he could do, he couldn't, wasn't going to really print a house because if you're going to print a house, you need to printers that can print in multiple materials, right? Because the pipes have to get printed into the walls and the electrical cables have to get printed inside the pipe, right? You have to do it all at once. So it was a lot, we thought it was a long way away. By the time we wrote Bold, which was a, few years later, four years later, they were printing single family homes. It was a Chinese company called Winsun that had printed, I want to say they did 10 single family homes over the course of a weekend. The following year, that same company came back and they printed, this was 2016-ish. It was a five-story apartment building. The following year after that, a different company blended 3D printing and modular construction, and they got up a 57-story skyscraper in 19 days, which is a skyscraper in 19 days. That's, I, I don't even know what to say to that. And here we are, it's, it's 2019 and it's a community. Over and over, it's like mind boggling and the convergence makes it mind boggling on top of the mind boggling, but it's also incredibly interesting. It's, if we understand, what's incredibly interesting to me is the opportunity. If we let this technology steer for us, and if it just unfolds in a haphazard sort of way, it will bring great benefit, of course. I mean, if we can print $4,000 single-family homes for the poor, well, that's a huge, you know, that's, that solves an enormous problem, of course. But done, when we start putting all these technologies together and thinking about them, I'll give you a simple example. Uh, Ramez Nam is one of the world's leading experts on renewable energy, and he's the head of renewable energy at Singular University, talks about grid-wide, uh, continent-wide renewable grids, which are what you really, if right now with all the, just in America, with all the renewables we've got, if we could skip, bring them together, we can produce 80% of our power needs just by linking what we've already got together into a continent-scale grid. We need this at a global scale, right? So you need everybody. You need the, everybody working together to really utilize these technologies if we're going to get ahead of problems like climate change um, or urbanization, for that matter, right? If you read sort of the end of the book, the amount of people who are moving downtown over the next decade—it's the largest migration in human history. Mm-hmm. 
Amid many migrations. Yeah. Or among, right, among many giant migrations in human history. Climate change migration over the next, you know, 30, 40 years is, is, is as big and as frightening. But urbanization is happening really fast. And it's either one of the biggest opportunities we've ever had because we can. So cities are amazing solutions to problems. Right. This is Jeffrey West's work to go back, mm-hmm. right? To go back to his work as a city sort of doubles in size. Every time it doubles, it uses 15% less resources than before. So they're amazing, efficient engines at scale if we design them correctly. So the opportunities are amazing. And if we get it wrong, it's going to be an absolute disaster. Right. I always say, Peter and I, when we wrote Abundance, we always used to joke and say, well, what the book really should be called is Abundance or Bust. We think of it as an either or, right? We have the opportunity to do this and we really are living into a world where we can meet and exceed the basic needs of every man, woman, and child. But if we don't do this, we have a real serious mess in our hands, I think. Are there opportunities for leadership? I mean, I'm not sure if it's appropriate because sometimes some things work best without some sort of centralized control. Not that that's the only way to lead. What do you mean by leadership is where, uh, where I would start with that? And maybe I jumped ahead a little too fast there because uh, you were saying... If we go one direction, there's abundance. If we go another direction, there's bust. Are people making these choices with foresight? Is there foresight possible? Or do market forces just lead things to where, to where they go? How do we decide if something... Those are massive economic questions that um, people a lot smarter than me probably uh, are more qualified to answer. But certainly we're seeing you know, companies that, that... I think business... You know, Peter and I said this in bold that if you want to make a billion dollars, help a billion people, right? The world's biggest challenges are always the world's biggest business opportunities. So these things are not mutually exclusive at at all. So market forces can be just as much of a force for good as they can, you know, for ill, I think. And And I think the opportunities for leadership are everywhere. And for the first time, this was, I think, a point we, we made in abundance, but I think it's still true. One of the things that we said in abundance is that, you know, for the first time in history, individuals and small teams can start going at problems like energy scarcity, water scarcity, or housing, right? Like we're talking about 3D printing houses for the poor. This is one guy, Brett Hagler, went to Haiti and went, wow, earthquake was a bunch of years ago. People should not be still living in tent cities three years after a major earthquake. That's wrong. Let's fix this. And he founded a nonprofit himself, knew nothing about 3D printing, just thought the technology might work for this, right? Like, so that's a, a level of leadership. You go back 20 years ago, the only people who could make those kinds of changes were large corporations, big governments. Now it's individuals, right? Now individuals can make huge differences. And that's what accelerated technology and emerging technology enables. So the opportunity to lead, um, I think it's much more, it's, it's being democratized in a way that we haven't seen before. Yeah, I was going to say, it sounds like democratization. And this sounds like one of the Ds. And I didn't think about it until you were just saying it. You talked about chess and Go and how computers went from forever to figure out chess and then Go, it was what, three years to, to become? Yeah, so Alpha Go Zero. So I don't know how long, it took forever, right, to win at chess, as you pointed out. And then I want to say that Google introduced AlphaGo, which was the first system to play Go. And it took, I don't remember how long it took to become, to beat Lee Soto, who was then the world Go champion, but it happened in under a year. But they introduced AlphaGo Zero. And AlphaGo Zero, so AlphaGo I think was machine learning. So they had to feed AlphaGo games, I believe, but AlphaGo Zero was reinforcement learning. So they gave the the AI a couple of simple rules and then sort of unleashed it and it taught itself by playing itself. And it took three days to defeat AlphaGo, right? The the, Uh the program, the parent program that had beat Lisa all the world's best. And within 40 days, it had trounced the 60 best Glow players in the world and was the undisputed Go champion of the, of the world. 40 days. And what's amazing about this is you have to realize like Go is the most complicated game on the planet, most mm-hmm. people believe. The game tree complexity is, is insane. It's so much bigger than, than chess. The number of moves you can make at any one point on mm-hmm. is just super complicated, right? It's chess for superheroes is I think the line I use in the book and it, it really seems to be. It took us... 200,000 years 
to master go, right? 200,000 years of human evolution to get to the point that we can put it in a computer beat us all in 40 days. And that again, and that was 2017, right? So this is already, you know, outdated, way outdated technology that I'm talking about. And now here's what I just thought about was, okay, so now let's apply that to the climate problem, to the environment problems. How quickly could it solve that? So it's an interesting question. So I, uh, along with a whole bunch of other people, helped found a company called Equilibrium that is aimed at sort of bringing technologists and environmentalists together uh, and sort of surrounding the problem, all kinds of stakeholders on all sides to solve the, the, these big challenges. And the first event we had, a, a friend of mine was there who's one of the guys who kind of helped build uh, IBM's uh, uh, Watson. Mm-hmm. And we were talking about how you can use an AI to, like we thought that it, within 10 years, we would see an AI as minister of the interior. And this was a couple of years ago. And the reason was you can, for the same, first of all, massive, they can, AIs can, can stort, sort of run ecosystem levels simulations. This is something we've never been able to do before, right? Ecosystems, we couldn't simulate them. They were too complicated. Now we're starting to be able to do it with both AI and quantum computing. But you could also make non-political decisions, right? Right now, government does not tend to make environmental decisions for environmental reasons, right? They make environmental decisions for lobbyists, for this, for that, right? Pulled in every direction. And our argument was, this was 2018, the first time we did that, or 2017, the first time we mentioned it on stage, uh, myself and Neil Sahota, my friend from IBM. And we said, we, you know, within 10 years, and everybody in the audience at that point, there were like 300 top experts in both the environment and technology. And everybody was like, you guys are foolish. That'll Uh never happen. 2019, we saw uh, an AI run for mayor province in Japan. Didn't win, but came really close, a lot closer than anybody expected. So I do think we're going to see this. I think we're going to see AI playing big roles in government, especially in places where you want to get the politics out, right? Especially if we're making environmental decisions and the whole planet is at stake, you know, depending, you know, if if the IPCC is right and we have 12 years to hold halt climate change at 1.5 degrees warming, or we're going to face devastating consequences. If, you know, research out of Stanford says we have three generations, you know, 25 years at this point to solve the biodiversity crisis. Otherwise, ecosystem services start shutting down in earnest, and we have a problem that we then can't solve. It'll be, it'll be a runaway problem at that point. We need to get politics out of environmental decisions. And maybe AI can do it. it- it gives it, it's a le- it's a lever we haven't had before, and it's mm-hmm. a way it's a different way of thinking about the problems. I don't you know who knows um, if that's the solution, and you know certainly people are definitely worried about kind of you know AI. You know, the AI seemed to be partially responsible for the financial crash of, of, of two thousand eight. Right, we didn't know the decisions they were making, and at this point, you know, when the market gets volatile, ninety percent of the trades are being made by computers. I wish we had time to cover a lot more. I, I know that uh, if anyone thinks, I think we've covered a lot in this brief conversation, but it, it, we're just scratching the surface of what you get when you read the book. Uh, this is really a thought-provoking book and I've read a lot of thought-provoking books and this is really thought-provoking. I hope that this is also the beginning of a, of a conversation between us. I know that you have, your book tour means a lot of conversations and I would love to just continue. Environmental leadership in general is a topic that's really dear to me and important to me. So give me a couple, give me, you know what I mean? Give me three, four months to get through what is going to be kind of a, a little bit of a tricky schedule. And then I'm more than happy to, to have this conversation again, because I think it's so important. And I think as many people as we can get talking about environmental issues, the better. It's super important to me. And I'm happy to kind of jump back on and continue the conversation. Okay. And I'll follow up. I'll send you, I'm saying this to you, but also to listeners, the Jeffrey West conversations are going to be relevant. I mean, we have had Elizabeth Colbert, who she talked about the great extinctions. And I'm also curious your connection with Neil Strauss, but that's a, that wasn't in this book. I just saw that. Um, Neil's a great guy. He's a, yeah. another super talented journalist. Also, guy who started out as his career as a journalist and kind of went into a bunch of different directions. Yeah, including North Korea with me. We, we were there and having a great time. Yeah. That, was that that expedition in the DMZ? We Let's see. I mean, we didn't enter the DMZ. Well, no, technically, I guess we did. I mean, we were on the... At the, at the building that straddles the uh, the DMZ, it was a two-week tour of North Korea. I mean, 
you get to see what they let you see. You have the handlers, you know, no one pretends that it's like anything other than the show that they put on, but it's a show in North Korea. <laughs> I want to, I'm super interested in the DMZ because obviously people haven't been in there for so long that you've got, first of all, you've got amazing plants, animals, and ecosystems yeah. in, in that part of the world in general. You have, life has sprung back up, you know, in, in that demilitarized zone. And, you know, the little bits that trickle out, the people who have done biotic surveys in there, you hear fascinating stuff. And I'm dying to see that. Starting to happen with Chernobyl too. And yeah, I've heard that too. Yeah. I wish we could go on. And uh, I look forward to next time. What I usually end with is uh, anything you want to say directly to the listeners that we might not have covered? You know, the, the, the thing that I always point out, and this comes more out of my work with human performance than it does with my work with technology, but I think it's across the boards. I just always like to point out that, that all of us are so much more capable than, than we really know. We're built to go big and we can go a lot bigger than we, we often assume. So that's what I like to leave people with. Stephen Kotler, thank you very much. Thank you. My pleasure. You could probably tell that I love learning what Stephen's book shares. I'd heard about all these technologies and their exponential rates of change, how they combine and reinforce echoes Jeffrey West's research. You might remember Jeffrey and I did three conversations before, so I'll put the link to those conversations, and I recommend listening to them. So how they combine and reinforce echoes Jeffrey West's research But Jeffrey talked high-level theory. Stephen talks on-the-ground detail. I still prefer what feels to me a more sober, people- and social-oriented approach, but I can't deny the perspective that these things are happening. Better learn them. I don't see these technologies as inevitable. I would hope that the people developing them would consider more the unintended side effects that have plagued technological advances before, like the Green Revolution, or say, how ride-sharing has led to the opposite of expectations of lower miles driven or congestion. But that's outside the scope of Stephen and my conversation. Anyway, I would love your thoughts on Stephen's conversation. Did you feel inspired too? Then act. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and click to commit to your personal challenge so you can inspire others. Value means better and worse, and living by your values means living better by your values. You may struggle at first, but it's the hero's journey from living by others' values to living by yours. People say that little things add up. I won't argue against it, but what I find counts is acting. Doing something, anything, starts that mindset shift from the debilitating others should act first or making excuses to the empowering I can make a difference and living by my values improves my life. I don't have to wait for others to act first. I'm looking for leaders, people who will bring what works here in this podcast to communities I haven't reached. Billions of people want to change their behavior, There's room for leadership from personal leadership of just yourself to whatever scale you want. Start by acting and changing yourself. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and commit to your personal challenge.